load the plates and lift the weights And we are mates and weights are great And as of late we pontificate about the weights And make a podcast! Sumo is cheating! This is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will Welcome to episode 49 of Weekly Weights I'm Alex, with me is Will And today we're going to be talking about competition day coaching so first things first alex sold me a hardcore dummy on this episode he said we're just going to have an open discussion no planning necessary and he's shown up for possibly the first time ever with about a four-page document (laughs) of notes ready to just lay down the law i'm ready to go yeah alex is ready to go i'm flying blind that's exactly how we coach though really we go in flying blind vague idea what we want to do and then just Anything could happen. What it, do you reckon? It's funny when, like, Chrissy and I, the night before a comp, yeah. we'll be, like, sitting at home and she'll have a clipboard out writing out all the clients' warm-ups and, like, writing out all their attempts and stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, no, I'll do that tomorrow. Yeah, I always... We'll get into the... <laughs> we'll get into this in some more structure very shortly, but I am the same. I Like, I know what people are going to open at-ish unless something needs to change on the day. And then between weigh-ins and warm-ups, I write all their warm-ups on the back of their attempt cards then because otherwise it's just too much stuff for me to rewrite out although although brandon had a great idea of um the coaching bum bag which i reckon we should start doing weekly weights coaching bum bags little, pictures of little logo little our logo on the front yeah, our nice. logo which we haven't quite brought to the people yet that'll come out when the clothes come out <laughs> the t-shirts 20, are definitely 2025 yeah 2025 weekly weights merch it'll be retro by then um before we do go any further shout out or slash quick reminder that we still do have the discount code running for city strength they haven't paid for any promotion this episode so that's all they're getting but city strength weekly weights 10 check it out that's it sweet yeah we're all business here if you don't pay we don't display if you don't pay we don't play yeah literally (laughs) perfect (laughs) (laughs) you are prepared for this episode (laughs) he's got a separate sheet that he's written down puns to try rhymes (laughs) rhymes rhymes spelled (laughs) r-i-m-z all right so i'm hazy like jay-z yeah i'm just dj burkey burke i wrote that one down too did you it was good all right what (laughs) what do you want to start with talking about i think in my mind i was thinking we could have like a practical component of this discussion when we talk about actually how you structure a day to give yourself the best chances of success and then after that we can talk about more of the philosophical stuff about like setting expectations for the client and you know how we might change the way we go about stuff depending on the level of the comp does that make sense to you or i was thinking we should do the expectation stuff first because Mm -hmm. then if the expectations are set correctly then then the plan can be set correctly does that make sense yep okay let's roll with that then so I guess question number one is why is setting expectations important and in what like in what respect do you do it? Well, we need to plan um, our expectations for the specific lifter to be actually something that they're capable of. Mm. So the way we do this um, is by obviously monitoring their training and giving them enough chances at heavy enough work during training to give us some sort of an idea of what they're going to be capable of in the comp. If they're doing really light fives, we really don't know what they're going to be capable of. So the level of training that they do in the lead up needs to be somewhat reflective of what we're going to be doing in a powerlifting competition. And then from there, we need to be able to determine, okay, I think they've got roughly up to this number. And then from there, draw the plan. I agree completely. I have a couple of notes to add. 
firstly that I think um, there's two there's two aspects to setting expectations. There's your coaching expectations, so what type of an actual performance you expect, and that's numerical and also in terms of like execution and stuff like that, like the other coachable aspects of being a lifter that we'll get into. So there's coaching expectations, but there's also also athlete expectations. And I think it's very important to define to your athletes, particularly at like lower level competitions or with less experienced athletes, what it is that you're actually trying to achieve. Because I think if you don't have if you don't have some sort of like congruency between what the coach is out there trying to get them to do and what the athlete envisages themselves going out there to do, then that can lead to doubt on the day and that'll play out. So if as a coach prior to the prior to the comp you say, Hey, like we're looking to you know, take PBs on every lift where we can. I don't want to push the biggest numbers we can. I want to see you go nine for nine and improve on, you know, X and Y aspects of your last comp performance. That gives the athlete some type of a guideline of what types of PBs you might be looking for. In that instance, I said like small and also the things that they can focus on that are like important to their performance, even if they're not numerical. And I think that's an important discussion to have prior to the comp as well. And you can do that later in the peak or as you're getting to your taper when you've seen how their lifts have been going. And if for one reason or another you do have a competition prep where you haven't had the opportunity to lift as heavy, that's also an important, you know, that's an important thing to frame in your discussions with the athletes where you might say, hey, you know, because whatever it is, you've been coming back from injury or we only had a short prep or whatever it happens to be, you know, we haven't lifted as heavy as I normally would in this prep, so we're going to be flying a little bit blind. I intend to go conservative. You know, I'm happy to take bigger jumps if you're looking really good on the day, but first and foremost i want to see x y and z from you i think those discussions are super valuable and it also in your head helps clarify your decision making because we'll get to this again when we're talking about on the day but on the day if you're standing there straight after their second attempt thinking how hard do i push their third you can reflect back to that discussion and that framework you set out and that will inform your decision what do you think of that yeah i agree entirely and you mentioned something else in there about non-numerical goals and obviously powerlifting is a very number number driven sport and you know the the lifter who lifts more kilos wins the competition and that is the way that we always go about did we improve our total that means we're better but there are other things that we can do to that would sort of dictate that we had a good competition there's a couple that i can think of off the top of my head and feel free to add to this list um number one would be enjoying yourself yep that's something that if you are too concerned about what you are lifting and you're too concerned about oh, like wanting to push every single kilo, you're going to forget to enjoy yourself. And what's the point in doing a sport like this where you're not paid and it's really hard and it takes a long time to get good when you don't enjoy it? That's the, that's the first thing. The next thing would be um, setting a goal to not miss any lifts on like technicalities, like follow all the rules to the T. So if you do miss a lift, make it be on strength. But don't miss any lifts because you didn't listen to the signals or you, I don't know, you had your heels up or something silly that you, that you know, you know better. Yeah, I'd agree with that as well. Um, Do you have anything to add to that list? Non-numerical stuff. I think the, um, I think the enjoying yourself one is really important and sometimes figuring out what's going to make you enjoy the comp or motivate you ongoing is also something that requires a discussion with the athlete <coughs> because... For instance, like Alex and I both coached athletes on the weekend. I think between us, we would have had 12. I had five, you had seven. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I know for my five athletes, each of them had slightly different sort of needs, like needs emotionally um, in terms of what they wanted to achieve at the comp. 
that would have made them feel fulfilled. And I li- I'd like to think that most of them actually achieved those things as well. But having those discussions is helpful too. And if you haven't listened to our episode with Bryce, then it, um, that's Bryce Lewis of TSA episode 47. Two ago. Yeah, 47. Seven. Yeah. Um, if you haven't listened to that episode, you probably should. Because you can use non-numerical goals and non-numerical markers of achievement to sort of engender in athletes some sense of motivation or achievement or progress that will continue to be motivating for them. And so if you do say, hey, like, or I mean, this is semi-numerical. If you say, hey, I want the distance between what you could have achieved on the day, like your best possible lifting day and the performance we put out on the day to be as small as possible and the ways we're going to go about it are not, you know, making technical or not technical errors, um, errors on technicalities that cost you lifts or maintaining your composure better or whatever it happens to be. You can do things like that. And then when an athlete reflects on the competition, which is again, something we'll talk about later, they'll look back and say, wow, you know what? I achieved all these things that are outside of just the immediate sphere of my performance that were really important to me and reflect like my growth as a lifter. So I think that stuff's cool too. So when I go to set expectations with athletes, um, I do just like Alex does. Um, as the competition gets closer, I would get more concrete in saying, hey, these are the types of numbers I'm looking for. And I never, almost never, I would say, um, I never say this is the exact number that we're going to lift on the day because like things happen on the day that you know you can't account for in preparation. But I do tend to say, hey, we're going to open it around X and Y and I think you're going to finish in this range and we're just going to be informed by you know, how you're moving on the day and this is what's going to influence my decision-making. And almost invariably, it's just like, you know, how good you're looking with the intention of you making every lift. But if it was at a higher level competition, I might say, you know, we'll push you at the higher end of there if we need to, to have you ahead of your competition or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, we can get to the um, the those actual competition aspects later. Yeah, for sure. Um, with the expectations, I tend to set them at the low end of what I think they're capable of. So if I see someone in training squat, say, let's say 220, and it's decent, and I think they maybe have 5 to 10 kilos mm. in the reserve, I would set the low end, I'd say 5, yeah, and that'd be my planned third attempt. Yeah, and then if they exceed that, everyone's happy, right? Yeah, correct. Um, and the other thing which I wrote down here is ignore your lifter's thoughts on what they're capable of. <laughs> yeah, I do. I think... <sighs> It's not because I don't trust my lifters' thoughts of what they're capable of. And some of my lifters, I actually think, are really good at giving a very honest appraisal of their abilities. But there is... It's not a heuristic. It's just plain substitution. Lifters tell you what they want to lift, not what they can lift all the time. Yep. And oftentimes the gap between the two is not that big but what what they want to lift is set really optimistically and it's always rounded to the nearest milestone yeah i've found um yeah and sometimes like they have the perfect day and you give a lifter every attempt that they want then you know it'll come up to be like an amazing total but almost invariably the risk reward um equation sort of favors a little bit of conservatism or trusting your gut over your lifters desire to lift like the nearest five or ten kilos um and then they just get a better performance and they're usually happier to think wow you know i i did a two kilo pb and i might have had two kilos more than wow i just narrowly missed a five kilo pb Mm. you know yeah 100 percent um i wrote in brackets there so the caveat for that is 
unless they're very experienced. Yeah. And if they've done, you know, 15 plus competitions and they're very aware of what they're capable of and what their training feels like in the lead up because they've done multiple preps, then that be that might be one case where you would listen to that a little bit more mm. and that could guide um, guide your attempt selection a little bit better. Yeah, um, but even like casting your, casting your mind back to say, I wouldn't put myself in the like super advanced lifter category, but when you were coaching me for the strength fortress at the end of last year, after my, say my hardest squat, right? Mm-hmm. So I did a 245. 245, yeah. Yeah, it was actually quite hard in the, on the day in training, but it moved okay. Wasn't my best ever squat technically, but I sort of said to you, hey, that day I felt like I had a few kilos more, like I might have ground out 250, but on my best day I felt like I had a little more. So I didn't give you in concrete numbers. I could squat 255 or something. I just said, that's vaguely how it felt today. Yeah. And when I think back to, you know, some of my better lifters like Chrissy or like JP, they tell me how they feel they could have lifted on that day based on what that weight moved, not this is what I'm going to be like on comp day because they also know that day-to-day, the changes in your preparedness actually impact your performance. Yeah, that, and that's something that I do... Um, with JP as well, with my own training, is I'll tell him, like, if I have a top single or top double or whatever, I will tell him, I think I could have done X today. And I think that helps you sort of, it helps the lifter think about potential, how they feel, and then how they would jump for the next attempt. And it can also guide the coach in that way as well. Yeah, so I think in that instance, it's useful. But again, that's a very different thing to saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to squat 255 on comp. And then you turn up at comp and you feel five kilos worse than the day that you said you're going to squat 255 and yeah. miss your third. Yeah. yeah. And then the other thing with setting expectations is um, be realistic to yourself with what your lift is going to be capable of. Like we see this all the time. Um, someone might squat um, 180 and it's pretty hard and they go, I want 200 and I think I'm capable of 200. And then they choose their attempts in order to get 200 mm. when you know, if any of us were looking at it, we might say, okay, you, you might have 192 yeah. or 190. And then we set up the attempt for 190 or 192 and then, you know, they make three squats or whatever the case is. Yeah. And so I think, I, I think it's very important to be honest with yourself and be honest with your lifter. If, if they are, if they're shooting too far what they're capable of, tell them. Yeah. And, and yeah, be honest with them because the worst thing you can do is is force someone into a attempt that they have no chance at. Yeah, I agree with that. And again, I think that probably reflects the philosophy that both of us have in peaking that we've discussed in previous episodes, where as you get later in the peak, you have those indicator sessions that give you an idea of how well you're moving. Um, but you, you should sort of be aiming quite conservatively. And just because sometimes like you've had lifters whose heaviest squat in preparation has been like 165, 170, and they've squatted 195 easy in a comp. Yeah. Just because that's the case doesn't mean that's the case for every lifter. And it's much better to have somebody cruise into competitions, take what is there, still realize some gains and walk away feeling a little bit better than take the most optimistic possible scenario. Like be optimistic in the moment at competition if it's there with bounds. Don't be optimistic in your extrapolations from training based on the best ever case of a lifter that you've coached because that's just a one-way road to ruin. Yeah, be be confident, not cocky. Yeah, exactly. I think that would just about cover setting expectations. Yeah, let's go into um, the day itself. Mm. So, do you want to talk about warm-ups or attempts first? I reckon, I reckon warm-ups make the most sense. Okay. Because they come before attempts. Do they? Sometimes. Is that how comps work? Sometimes. I have heard stories of um, 
And okay, well, here's a sensible example. So Blaine Sumner in that meet where he squatted 500, benched a world record, and then deadlifted something. Was that like the Arnold last year? Two Arnold years ago? 16, I think, or 16 or 17. Arnold. Fucking hell. Anyway, that was yeah. hectic. 501, 501. Who cares? Heaps. <laughs> yeah, um, crazy total. So in that meet, I know that he opened his bench raw with lighter than he normally opens his bench raw so that he could have a bench so that he wouldn't lose that squat and therefore the total. And then he had to run out the back and do one warm-up to like a two-board or something in his shirt and then take his second attempt, which was the ugliest bench press ever, but was still like a three-lift bench world record or something. Um, That was the first bench that he did in a shirt that touched his chest that day. And then he jumped from there to an all-time bench world record which he got and it was still pretty ugly, but it was better than his second. And I was extremely surprised. So there's an example where somebody's doing warm-ups between attempts. Pretty hectic. But I have heard stories of other people who will like open, open a moves bad. They run out the back and do more warm-ups between attempts. Not big into that. The worst idea. The worst thing you could do. <laughs> Literally the worst thing you can do. So presuming that your warm-ups do come before your attempts, they should probably be timed in a way that facilitates your performance. Um, first things first, the number of warm-ups you should do. So this is individual. And again, I think you told an anecdote on the show at one stage about um, a lady who was a referee in PA who has to do... Oh, Mary. Mary has to do heaps of warm-ups, yeah, right? because she's like 55. I mean, 55 is not even that old, but shout out, Mary. For the majority of my lifters for squatting, they'll do about five warm-ups, um, unless they're much weaker, in which case they might need fewer. But they'll do about five warm-ups. Bench, they'll do somewhere between four and five. And deadlifts, they'll do somewhere in the four-ish range. Rarely more, very rarely fewer as well. Um, but if you're doing four or five warm-ups, then the next question should be how to space them. Um, and I think the next question should be, I think more important than the spacing is the uh, percentage of the warm-ups. Actually, yeah, that's yeah, that's much more important. Why don't we go into that? Okay. You go. So the way that I set up 99% of my lifters is the same as you. Five warm-ups to squat and bench mm-hmm. and four warm-ups for deadlift. Um, and I've written this down. The last warm-up is the most important warm-up and it, it goes backwards in order of importance to the first warm-up and that that relates to how heavy the weight is and the timing so you can kind of screw up the timing of the first few and you can be off by a few kilos on the first few so long as the last two or specifically the last one is done at the right time and it's the weight, the right weight so that's the way that i kind of go about it yeah i um, fully agree so far so we'll go backwards from i always write more warm-ups backwards me too. So I'll start with the opener. So we know what the opener is. Let's say it's, uh, let's say it's two hundred and twenty-five kilos. Because okay, that's a nice round number. Because that was the, um, that was the number I used for the example later. Right. Which we'll get to. Fine. Um, you actually prepare, uh, Alex. I want to say this publicly. I'm proud of you. <laughs> right. Um. I think of myself sometimes like a school teacher, and I just like seeing Alex's continued development as a professional. Um, he was here today early, five or six minutes early. He's walked in with his notes, ready to record. He's got his drink open and ready to go. And he sat himself straight down on the floor, picked up his microphone and said, you know, righto, let's hit it. And that's great. Here we are hitting it. Here we are hitting it. And you've prepared an example for us. Um, let's go in your colored pencils as well. That's good. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, tell us your example. So 225 is the opener. So 225 is the opener. Uh, this is like, this is for a squat. Yeah. The last one up is somewhere between 90 and 92%. <laughs> 90 and 92, did you say? Yep, 90 and 92% yep. of the opener. So that's going to take us 202 to 207. Mm-hmm. So 205 is probably the right number to take there. Nice 20 kilo jump to the opener, roughly mm-hmm. 10%. Good stuff. And then we'll go to the second last one up, which will also be a single, which is at 82%, which is going to be... That's another 10% down from... Yeah, so 185. Yep. So another 20 kilo jump. Makes sense. Which is also a single... Um, and then I've got ranges for the last three. So the third, well, the middle warm up, the third last one will be a double between 65 and 70. So 65% is going to be 147 ish kilo. So probably 150 or yeah, something ish. like that. Yeah, roughly 150. And then before that, we're looking at 55 to 60%. Yep. So that is roughly 120. Yep. Close ish. Yep. And then. 35 to 45%, so roughly 70. So if we were to do that in absolute numbers, we would do 70 for 5, 120 for 5, sorry, 120 for 3, mm-hmm. one, 150 like one. for 2, yep. 185 for 1, and 205 for 1 before a 225 squad opener. There's a problem in those jumps, 120 to 150. You mean like 120 to 155 or something? I think that's what I said. In On the 70, way down, you said that? 70, 120, 70, 150, 155, 185. 205. Yeah, I'm cool with that. Before 225. So the way I do it's different, but I think the numbers would end up being the same. So I try and time, I try and have my last warm up spaced at about the same space below the opener that the opener would jump to the second. So if I'm, say somebody's opening with a 225 kilo squat, for me, that would be somebody who's looking to squat somewhere in the 245 to 250 range. Um, probably like 250 ish. In which case, I'm expecting them to jump from 225 to about 240. Um, yeah, so I'm expecting them to jump from 225 to 240, which means I want their last warm-up to be 15 to 20 kilos below that, which takes you to 205 to 210. Yeah. And then from there, I just space the numbers out a little bit more. So if they've gone down 15 kilos, their next one might be a 20 to 25 kilo jump, and then so on and so on. And if I worked back from there, I'd end up with almost the exact same numbers as you, give or mm-hmm. take like two to five. Yep. Um, and the only way that I sort of change that a little bit is if I have, if I have a client who, for one reason or another, likes bigger jumps or likes smaller jumps, that would be reflected in their attempt selection, and then I would also mold the warm ups around that. So say, say I myself was opening at a 220 kilo squat, intending to jump to a 240 kilo second, which I wouldn't really like to do, but like I could handle that. 225. No, so I'm saying like I'm opening at 220, so I'm jumping 20 kilos instead of 15. Right. I might make my last warm-up 195 or something to reflect the fact that I'm taking those big jumps because I don't think it's good to have a smaller jump between your last warm-up and your opener than you do from your opener to your second because then the extra weight just shocks you. Yeah. But I work on that basis and then and it'll end up being almost the exact same as Alex's and all I do, I would back check it against percentages a little bit if I think that they're looking a little bit too cramped or a little bit too spaced. But I usually, like, usually works out just fine by doing that. Is So see the jump from your opener to your prospective second, unless things are wrong, and then make your last warm up that distance or a tiny bit more below your opener, and then just keep expanding that gap a little. And yep. same rep scheme for me, pretty much invariably on squats. Yeah. And the same thing applies to bench. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't need to use an example, but. 
the last two warm-ups are singles, a double, a triple, and a five. Um, and then we go to deadlift. The way that I do it, and I'm pretty sure you do the same, is take away that first set of five warm-up um, and only do four warm-ups. So the first warm-up's three, then it's two, then it's two singles. Um, and I will tend to make the last warm-up a little bit lighter on the deadlift than the other two. Um, this will mean, like, obviously a bigger jump, which is fine, because we tend to, tend to see bigger jumps between deadlift attempts anyway. Um, so my last warm-up will be looking like somewhere between 88 and 90% of a deadlift opener versus 90 to 92 of a squat and bench. Um, and then because we only have four warm-ups instead of five, the jumps down are going to be bigger as well. Pretty much, pretty much entirely agree. I would add that on bench, sometimes I'll do an additional double instead of just single, single, single. Depends on the lifter because some lifters just seem to get better with a few more bench reps provided they're easy. But otherwise, same thing. And I'd also, I'd also add that depending on the lifter, sometimes I'll make them pause every rep of their warm-ups and sometimes I'll just make them pause the first. And then as they get to singles, obviously that means they're doing only pause reps. But otherwise, pretty much exactly the same. Um, for deadlifts, yes, what you said. Um, but again, if you use my method of roughly how much you're going to jump from your opener to your second, that should, by definition, also give you a bigger jump from your last warm-up to your opener. Because say for myself, when I deadlift, it would be very common for me to jump 20 kilos from my opener to my second attempt. So that means a 20 to 25 kilo jump from my last warm-up to my opener, which is a pretty big gap is reasonable and then from there I could go down 40 or 50 kilos and so on and so on and that space is out fine um so if I were listening to this and about to coach my first ever client I would probably just cross check I would do exactly Alex's maths and then cross check it against your attempt selection to see that it all actually gels up and if it doesn't then something's probably wrong because I could do it exactly Alex's way and get about the same answers as I get doing it mine um and it tends to work so that should be good yeah there is um one caveat with this is that sometimes you're going to type in the percentage and it's going to be like a weird a weird number annoying number to load yeah and you might just want to load like one red plate instead like if if your first day the formula comes out at 65 just do 70 because it's easier to load yeah it like doesn't those, really matter at that point yeah those kind of things um just will make things more efficient it's easier it's quicker um it's it's less stressful for you so quick recap your last warm-up is eight to ten percent below your opener and then the one before that is about ten percent lighter the one before that's about fifteen percent lighter and the one before that is fifteen to twenty percent lighter and then the one before that is whichever plate you start with pretty basically. much yeah okay um that makes that makes perfect sense to me and should work out well um we'll quickly cover timing of warm-ups and then maybe we can get to attempts yep okay so you said the last two or the last warm-up particularly is the most important one timing-wise. Mm -hmm. I agree. And the way that I try to structure it is by finding out roughly how long I expect it to be between attempts for my lifters and then have their last warm-up be about that distance, maybe minus a couple of minutes from their opener. So for instance, if they're squatting in a group of eight people and I'm expecting each attempt to take about a, a minute, that means that there's going to be about sort of, yeah, between six and 10 minutes between attempts, probably more like six to eight. So I'd make their last warm up about eight minutes prior to when I expect them to squat. So if somebody's third in a group and there's a five minute break before squats, that would mean that right at the start of that five minute break, I get them to take their last warm up. Um, 
that would be my starting point. Alex? Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, the attempts are going to be spaced out very evenly when we actually get on the platform. Um, you might have plus or minus one or two minutes if you take a bigger jump than you, someone you're lifting before or vice versa. You might get one extra minute or one less minute in a particular round, but it's generally going to be however many lifters in the group is going to be how many minutes you have between attempts. Maybe so, plus a tiny bit yeah, on the bench. Yeah, maybe plus a little bit on bench if the spotters change the safety heights. Yeah. Um, um, so, yeah, that last warm-up should be spaced um, the same as the number of lifters in the group as far as minutes. So if there's a group of 10 um, and we wanna, we're want squatting ninth out of that group of 10, we're going to do our last squat warm-up one minute before that group starts, for instance. Yeah, um, that works perfectly and for me. And then before then, we're going to... Um, gradually space them shorter and shorter as we get li- as the weights get lighter. So that's so like I explained the warm ups going backwards. We go from last to first. Um, it might be ten minutes and then eight, and then six, and then four, and then four, or something like that. So what I tend to do, I would, so I do the exact same thing in terms of spacing timing of warm ups. But again, oftentimes at local meets it can be a little bit chaotic, and because you can get your first few warm ups done pretty much in rapid succession because they're not challenging weights they're just getting you moving i don't even mind either starting late and rushing through them or starting right at the time i planned and just when the bar is available doing that yeah and then spacing out the final few yeah and so i write on the back of attempt cards for a lifter what their warm-up will be and roughly what time or roughly how many minutes out i want them to do it and then all i do is shape it so that the last warm-up or two is timed about correctly and other than that, I just use that time there as basically like a limit of when I want it done by. So if you do your first few warm-ups a couple of minutes early, not a huge deal as long as you're not sitting around for like 45 minutes. But I don't think it's good to be coming in and being like, okay, shit, I've got 10 minutes before my flight starts and I haven't done 70. Like that's no good either. Yeah. Yeah, in- entirely agree. And that goes back to the point that I mentioned earlier with the last two warm-ups or the last one in particular being the most important. So it's the most important to time it correctly. It's the most important to for it to be loaded exactly the way you wanted it. Mm-hmm. And then the ones before that, you can kind of get them in where you can within reason. Plus or minus three minutes is probably a good rule. Yeah. Um, if you can get them done, get them done. Yeah. And so you can plan for having like three or four minutes between warm-ups from your first one and do them at a one-minute spacing. And that's totally fine. But what you'll tend to find happens when, particularly at local competitions where you're sharing racks and it's quite busy, is if you plan to do them one minute apart, you're going to end up having to wait because somebody will walk up and say, oh, great, is that 75 on the bar? I need that. Can I jump my athlete in? And then suddenly you're behind schedule yep. where you otherwise wouldn't have been. Yeah, so, and that's really stressful for the coach. And then the lifter is going to see that on you and that's going to add to their stress. Yeah. So be planned, be, sorry, be prepared, plan ahead. And be aware that you're not going to be able to do your warm-ups exactly to the minute, so long as you can do the last one or the last two roughly when you want. And I would add to that, this is less important. Oh, I'm not even sure if it's less important, but probably less important when you have a high-level lifter who's very familiar with the comp environment. But I also think those last couple of singles and stuff that you do should be done with full competition commands just to get the lifter in the zone of actually responding to the commands, doing everything correctly. Prior to that, it's a bit of a, um, it's a bit of a wash whether you actually, you know, make a lifter squat when you say squat and rack when you say rack and so on. It's still probably good practice, 
But those last couple, it's really crucial to actually create a competition environment. The reason I say I'm not sure whether it matters as much with the more experienced lifters is I know, for instance, I know what the commands are. I can walk out and just do a squat um, with the referees now. I'm not going to be confused by the environment. But I actually think it helps my rhythm, say, as a lifter um, to be used to responding to that and just going through my process with that happening in the background. And I'm sure it would be the same for other lifters as well. Like Alex, yourself, it's probably nice for your headspace to start getting used to having someone who's a squat, rack, and things, right? Yeah, I actually will listen to music all through warm-ups until my last one. And then my last one, I'll get full calls and stuff. Yeah. And it kind of gets me in that, in that rhythm, in that sort of feel. Yeah, but irrespective, otherwise, I would, I would get into that practice as well. Give them calls for the last couple. Yep. Um, do you want to have a quick break and then do attempt selection? We've yeah, been going for let's do that. Yep. Name a powerlifting podcast. Peak speak. Name a better one. Weekly weights. Weekly weights. Welcome back to Weekly Weights. I'm Will. With me is Alex. We're talking competition. What about... up? <laughs> what up, Alex? Good to have you here. Hey, man. Um, hey, bro. We're talking... <laughs> hey, Will. Well, you know what? I was actually going to start this one by like semi-humble bragging, but also getting you involved in just like a group loving of how fucking good we are. Um, <laughs> we're talking competition day coaching. Now, you guys might be wondering what fucking credentials do these idiots have to tell us about <laughs> competition day coaching? They're not even any good. Sandbaggers. Yeah. And you might be right, but, <laughs> but I reckon on aggregate... Since Open Nationals last year, how many attempts have your... Oh, fuck. You've, you've done competitions nearly every weekend since. I think I've coached at like maybe four or five comps since. Well, I've been tracking my made, made lifts this year yep. of my team. Yep. Um, so, it's the middle of March. Yep. We've had 13 lifters lift. Mm-hmm. We have um, nine nine for nines. Yep. Two eight for nines. Yep. And two seven for nines. So, 13 times 9, three nines are 27, that's 117 attempts, is that correct? Um, and you've missed, you've missed, did you say three eight for nines and two seven for nines or two eight for nines? Two of each. Two of each, so, and, so 117 four, six, attempts. So, 111 for 117. That's extremely good. So, I... So, uh, on average, that is eight and a half makes per lifter. That's pretty good. In Which fact, that's, yeah, that's pretty solid. Yeah, obviously impossible to extrapolate that average to an individual, because um, eight and a half you can't half make a lift. Also, big shout out to Marcus and Aiden for going seven for nine and fucking with my numbers. Yeah, Aiden used to be my client, and when I realised he was a fucking choker, <laughs> <laughs> I handed him off to Alex. Um, shout out, Aiden. Uh, does he listen? He definitely doesn't listen. Oh, bugger. He's a good bloke. I hope he listens. Um, <laughs> so, so I think I was 47 from 49 on the weekend. 47 from 50 if we count the fact that um, that Kyla benched a misloaded bar and got reds for wiggling her head around trying to figure out why one side was heavier than the other. Um, <laughs> that was pretty funny. But um, Did you say 49? Yeah. Well, that doesn't make sense. Did I say... Oh, 45. 43 for 45. 47? No, hmm? 45. Yeah, 43 for 45. Yeah, okay. 7-7. Um, I don't know how I got 7-7. Seven, seven, um, 43 for 45. And then... Uh, I can't even remember anything in the middle, but at Open Nationals, I had... I ended up, I think, with six lifters and had three misses across six. So six nines of 54. So 51 for 54. Does that include me? Hmm? Yeah, that includes you. You fucking quit on your deadlift. What do you mean? Eight for nine. That's good. Yeah, it was a pretty good day. Um... 
Yeah, and one of those misses, I'm going to chalk up to JP. So, guys, theory here, John Paul Kauke, subtle cheater. I was coaching Matt Tinson on his behalf because JP was competing with and against Matt Tinson. Matt Tinson hits his second squat. It was pretty good. And I can't remember the exact figures. Tino missed 252. 52 and a half, yeah. Yeah, I wanted him to go to 250. Yeah. JP goes, give him 252 and a half. He missed 252 and a half. I reckon JP wanted him to miss so that he could be in the running. What do you reckon? Valid. Absolutely valid. He squatted 248 when I was coaching him in Tino? a few weeks ago. Yeah. How'd it go? Was it good though? 248? Nine for nine. Oh, perfect. Um, oh, no, eight for nine. He misses opener on depth. Oh, that we went up anyway. Yeah, well, don't do that, Tino. Um, in fact, I should say one of those misses as well was somebody not listening to the calls on bench, which hurts my soul. Um, and that was an opener, so we went up too. Yeah, so, I had two of those. Oh, man. Anyway, so all I'm saying, aside from that JP is a cheater, is that is that I think I'm also like I'm five misses or something. You're right? Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm five misses from over 100 attempts in, in the past couple of comps that I've handled a lot of lifters at. So I can semi-coach on the day. Either that or I'm really fucking wussy with my attempt selections. Yep, sandbag kings. Sandbag kings. So how many times have you gone nine for nine personally, Alex? Zilch. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so we were talking about this actually earlier. How are we this good at making our clients make lifts and hit PBs and we just keep missing at comps? This is um similar to something Skepis put up. Yeah. Because Skepis lifted on Saturday, Sunday yeah, as well. Yeah. And he himself went six for nine, um, made a couple of like silly mistakes. Um, I think he misses deadlift opener for something silly. Um, and he said, coach experience does not equal athlete experience and athlete experience does not equal coach experience. And I think that's like, that sums it up really well. Like we see a lot of people who are great athletes and not good coaches and like us, good coaches and not good athletes. Hey, speak for yourself. I'm a shit coach. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we... Anyway, we should say... Most of our athletes make most of their lifts. We don't make most of our lifts, but as Matt Cherry quoted me saying, I can't remember saying this, but apparently it was on the podcast, fuck making lifts. It's all about chasing milestones. I'm not going to... That's what you said when you attempted 300 at the fort. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. I was like, do you want 292.5 for a deadlift and a total PB? And you were like, fuck a total PB, man. I want 300. <laughs> So, so applied example, if your athlete says that to you, you say, back in your fucking box. Yeah, do 292.5, you bitch. If you'd sent me out for 292.5, I would have been so A-motivated, I wouldn't have even tried. <laughs> no, nah, that's a lie. I would have picked it up and it would have been probably quite good. Oh, well, lesson learnt. Not, I'm not attempting anything between 290 and 300. Just registering that publicly. Um, if Sorry. 295 was for the win, I'd go 300. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's talk, let's talk about actually intelligent and realistic attempt selection. How do you choose an opener or how do you actually, sorry, how do you choose whatever you choose first? Um, I don't, I used to choose the second attempt first and I still do this sometimes. Um, but I don't really have like a process that I use every time to every person for attempt selection. Um, like we spoke about earlier, we have the the um, the goal, mm-hmm. the goal for the third. So in the example that we used earlier, it was two fifty. Um, what we would do from there is um, knowing our lifter, we would know like how much we would want them to jump between attempts, or how much they would want to jump between attempts, and we can go from there. So there's some general ranges that we can use 
um, as far as percentages go. So similar to the way that we designed the warm-up structure, there's a little bit of flexibility in it. Um, but the the opener is going to be 88 to 91% of the planned third. So if that is 250, if the 250 is the goal, it's going to be somewhere between 220 and 227 and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, so that same example that we used earlier, 225 opener. Um, and the second is going to be somewhere between 94 and 96. So that's going to be somewhere between 235 and 240. And then the third, 97 to 101. So that gives us a little bit of range on the low end of the goal and then a tiny, tiny bit above the top end of the goal. So if the lifter's feeling really good, we might go you know, up to two and a half more than what that plan was. So again, I do things differently, but in a practical sense, almost the exact same. So if I've looked at a lifter, this is presuming I actually have some idea of what I think they can lift, which for most of my lifters I do. Um, If I look at a lifter and think they could, whatever it is, they could squat based on this prep. They look like they're good for somewhere between 245 and 252, probably closer to 250. I would then say, well, what type of second attempt gives me a reasonable a reasonable jump to somewhere in that third range. So like something I'm confident that they can get, but isn't going to be a reach to go to the high end of that. And so in that instance, if I'm like, they can squat 245 to 50, I might think a good second is say it on three, two, one, two, forty. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm like, okay, well, the second attempt should be about 240. And then I think about how light can I open to get them to that second attempt where like they're going to feel ready for that second attempt so I actually get an indication of how strong they are and the opener should be a piece of piss. And so like you could open at 230 and go 230, 240, 250 but 230 seems unnecessarily hard and so and like likewise you could jump from 220 to 240 but that seems like a pretty big jump just to me immediately. So I tend to go okay well 225 to 227 would be good and then I'd usually go 225 and the reason I'd go 225 is because if they absolutely crap out on the day at 225, I can always jump them to then 235 or 237. And then from 235 to 7, you still have, you know, 40 through 42 or 40 to 45 available for a third. So the intention being actually have them make all their lifts and build in enough wiggle room. So to reiterate, I start at a range of their third goal. I then have a relatively set second that I would only really change downwards if things aren't really shaping up well. And then from there, I take a bit of a bigger jump down to the opener to something that's going to be comfortable, but still within touching range. Yeah, and if you use the numbers that you use, they're exactly the percentages that I gave you. Yeah. Yeah. So your percentages probably just rationalize that same thought process. Yeah, 100%. Good. Um, so if we look at the opener, the way that we see the opener is like the way that I see it is it's a it's a last warm-up really, but it just happens to be on the platform in a familiar environment and it sort of sets you up for the day. So that's the way that, that I view the opener. You should never miss an opener on strength. Your opener should be extremely comfortable. Like I said, 88 to 91% of the goal should never, ever, ever miss on strength. Maybe you you know beat a rack command or you get nervous and you misstep or something like that, but the strength should always be there for your opener. Would you agree? Yeah, entirely. And I think if you look at your opener on paper and you think like in like there's any ambiguity about... Can I like? Can I comfortably make this weight and make it look pretty easy? Then almost certainly, either your attempt selection is just fucked in general, or um, or your thirds are way too ambitious. Like if you if you have an athlete opening at two twenty five, wanting them to squat two fifty, 
So your attempt selection is actually sounding okay so far. But you think 225 might look a little bit hard. There's no fucking way they're squatting 250. So you've got something wrong already. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I said this on Instagram. Um, it was actually a couple of years ago. If your opener is something that scares you, it's too heavy. Yeah. I think I said that like, it might have even been three years ago. It was so long ago. Yeah. Um, my opener still scared me though. <laughs> yeah, well, to be honest... <laughs> When I think about what is my scariest attempt in competition every time without fail, it's my first squat. Yeah, first squat's tough. Um, and, you know, I've like, I keep opening it around 5RMs on my squat. Bearing in mind that my 5RM is about 98% of my 1RM <laughs> strength curve. But like, even so, first squat is actually hard. And I think you should account for that in your attempt selection as well, by the way, is most people when they go out for their first squat, it's going to be their first time actually standing on the platform with the crowd in front of them, figuring out where they're going to look, waiting for the commands. They're most nervous to get into the meet. You don't want to have a hard attempt. And I know like everybody and their dog says this, but like if you don't already think this, get it in your head. should be really easy, your first squat. 100%. All right, let's go on to the second attempt. So the way that um, I think about the second attempt is this is like, this is the one that sets us up. And this is something that I say to all my lifters. I say, earn your third while they're doing the second. I say, this is the one that tells me what you're capable of today. And this is the one that decides what number I write down on a little piece of paper and give to the tech desk. This is the one, this is what I call the feeler attempt. So go out there, give it 100%, smash it, and then you will get the third that you want. And that's the way that I rationalize it with my lifters because I think this is something that I've noticed for a few years like you mentioned earlier the opener is really nerve-wracking a lot of people build up a lot of stress over the opener and then they come out and they one of two things happen they either smoke it or it's like a little bit awkward and but they still get it and then once they finish their opener they switch off and they go out for their second they don't even think they screw up their second and they come out they get a low end third and they smoke it yeah Happen to team on bench on the weekend. Yeah, happens, exactly that. happens all the time. So people are thinking about their opener while they're doing all their warm-ups. They do their opener, they forget about it, and now they're thinking about their third. So you've got to take one attempt at a time, whatever attempt is in front of you, give that 100%. This is, the, this is your feeler attempt, your second attempt. This is the one that sets you up for the biggest total that you can achieve. And this is the one that proves to your coach what you are capable of. So I've already said pretty much how I go about thinking of my seconds, right? Which is the attempt that puts you within touch of the range of strength that I think you have. Um, I, this isn't to say I don't watch the other attempts intently, but the second is the one that I really look at for that reason, because that's the one that I expect to actually give me an indication of what my athletes are capable of. In the opener, I still watch because I want to see is somebody like just way off on the day for strength or is there a problem with their composure? But I'm still pretty confident to jump to their second. And the second, just like we said, the opener, you shouldn't miss on strength. Most of the time, you shouldn't be missing seconds on strength either. Like, if you're missing a second on strength, sounds like you're a little bit ambitious or you've really come into the day a little bit underdone. Because to me, it should be your second will be somewhere in the range between a relative walk in the park and quite hard. And then it's that range that tells you how much to go to your third. So I'm still expecting people to be able to make their second all the time. Um, and sometimes that makes me almost a little bit more conservative with the seconds than many of my athletes want because they view it as a total builder. Um, I want people to make their thirds. So I also want the second to be to be not 
that hard, but I want it to be hard enough to give me an indication. So that's the one I watch really intently. Um, yeah, um, this is something that I saw on, oh, not saw, but listened to on Peak Speak, which is the um, inferior Australian powerlifting podcast hosted by Thomas Lilly and Shero. Yeah, shout out. And by shout out, I mean just quick moment of vilification. Fuck both of you. <laughs> Carry on. Um, <laughs> something that Thomas said on the last episode was, um, he will say to his lifters, are you expecting to miss all of your thirds? And they obviously say, oh, no, of course not. And he says, okay, well, then your second should be really easy then. Yeah. And um, that's like a, that's really like simple and very valid way of um, putting it. Yeah, well, I find it really funny if I like, I find it funny if you were to say that to a client. So let's go back to our hypothetical lifter, the 250-ish squatter that opens at 225. Mm-hmm. Like Rufus. Shout out Rufus. Yeah, shout out Rufus. Um, if you're gonna if you're gonna squat like, yeah, ten kilos more than that, it sh- you shouldn't be missing that on strength. You know, like you've got to be you got to be four percent off on the day, which is like a pretty reasonable amount. You got to be four percent off for that to be anything other than a lift that you comfortably make. And like, it'll still be hard, obviously, because it's above ninety five percent. But like, you shouldn't miss. Um, and to be honest, most of my lifters don't get 250 unless they look like they could probably do 252, you know? So, Definitely, yeah. So, yeah, just like Alex said, your second shouldn't be a strength limit tester. It should be a strength limit indicator. Should be the, yeah, it should be the type of thing where it's, it's hard enough to have an idea of how hard you can go, but that only needs to be somewhere between a pretty smooth single and a pretty tough single where you have a bit more. Um, and, you know, it's the type of thing where that the second should be like that lift in training that you do that makes you go fuck i only have only had a little bit more than that today but i was never in doubt of missing that's what i would like to see most of my second attempts look like and obviously in practice that's not always the case because like you know things happen on the platform athletes get nervous sometimes they don't perform to your expectations but that's the idealized second is you see it and you go you have a pretty good gauge of what they can lift and then for their third i'm just going to start talking about thirds and you can jump in third unless there's like a reason a competitive reason i tend to give them i tend to give my athletes what i think they could lift if they did it perfectly minus a couple of kilos and i would i would only deviate from that if it's something like say women's bench press where the difference between your second and third might actually be a couple of kilos in which case you don't have as much wiggle room for selection now we have one kilo increments in world powerlifting which makes things easier but i pretty much just round down a little bit from what my expectations of their true strength limit is to account for the fact that sometimes I'm wrong and sometimes it's harder than expected and that I want them to make the lift. And then I'd send them out for that unless it's like they need this for competition. What do you think? Uh, yeah, the the third is the what I call a take what's there attempt. So the only, um, the only indicator that we have for what our third should be is our second. So we have to use that as like that's the that's the most recent and most important piece of information is how was the second so if if your second was shit take your low end third take the lowest end third you can and, and make it because that's better than missing something that's ambitious obviously um what have i got written down here so this is your this is your quote-unquote only real attempt is the way that i see it like the the ones before it are warm-ups they're setting you up for the one that you're the one that you're capable of this is the only one that matters you should never plan on missing a third so go out and make it and make it the best you can yeah i'm all for that and i think what you said about the second being the most proximal information is also really important to consider because when the second is hard you don't just have to account for the fact that 
oh fuck they only could have lifted seven more kilos if they did that perfectly you then also have to account for the fact that not only could they have only lifted say seven more kilos but that they just did a lift that was that hard therefore you should probably round down even further so um so don't just don't just think if they did it like their second they could do seven more say and this is part of where the art of coaching comes in you have to say they could have ground out seven more kilos they're going to be fatigued i'll give them five kilos or you have to say they didn't make that look very good they could only have lifted seven more kilos there are a couple of things off of their execution we can pull this together and actually take the second and make it look or take the seven kilos i should say and make it look better but that's that's the things they're the things you actually have to start thinking about when you see a second attempt that doesn't conform to your expectations is what explains it and what impact is that likely to have on the next attempt and then how much confidence do you have in your athlete's ability to bring it together and actually do better or do differently or do it the same whatever it happens to be on the platform what do you think yeah 100% agree there um that leads me to queuing which i think is either the most or least important thing that coaches do on competition day um Mm -hmm. do you want to talk about queuing probably should it's pretty important yeah or not important i think the um we spoke about this with with Bryce on 47. Um, the closer the lifter gets to the competition, the less you want to talk about technical stuff and the less cues you want to... The less the more cues you take away from their training and you take away from their lifting. So I guess that kind of um, is embodied in the competition day itself in that you don't want to speak too much and you want to kind of say the same couple of things over and over again. And this is something that I used to think was really funny that Robert would do. Mm. he would say like literally two words a million times each like chest 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 tall 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 and the the more i coach the closer i get to robert <laughs> you do get closer and closer to robert it's a shame to watch they got way more um, hair though yeah so i pretty much agree with bryce entirely what i in fact one of my lifters who'll go unnamed went nine for nine pb'd every lift and pb'd her total on the weekend and then immediately after told me I'm the worst because I didn't give her technical feedback between her lifts. Um, but... Should I say her name? No, she knows who she is. Um, <laughs> but the... Um, when when lifters are competing, they shouldn't be trying to make conscious technical adjustments. We spoke a little bit about that with Bryce and why. You just want to let them go out and do it. And so when they actually do an attempt pretty well... Like, if there's something very subtly wrong technically, you can help them rationalize it, maybe. But, like, if they do a broadly good attempt, you're pretty much there to encourage them. And so, oftentimes, I'll say, that was great. Do it just like that. It's going to be a little bit heavier. You're going to just have to stick with it. Like, it'll be hard. And then send them out and just encourage them. Because at that point, thinking too much about technique doesn't help. Where I do sometimes give technical feedback is not actually really when they're going to go do the lift. It's immediately after an attempt, and this comes back again to something Rob said with the feedback sandwich. Um, so Rob says, you say something good that they did, something bad that they did, and then something good that they did again. Um, I think of it more as like, how do I help rationalize, like how do I help that lifter rationalize that last attempt so they can go forward onto their next attempt with a sense of purpose and that they're in control. And so if a lifter comes off after their first deadlift and it moved pretty well, if it's like spot on, I just say, that was really great. We're going to go up to your second, blah. If it was like they made a minor technical error and they're wondering, you know, why they misgrooved it, I might say, hey, you know, that was pretty good. You let the bar get away from you more. Just keep tugging it in. You'll be sweet. Off you go. But that way they're like, oh, yeah, that's something I can control. We've spoken about in training. And then when they go out onto the platform, I don't alter their queuing to a 
to account for the fact that they made a minor technical error before. I say the same cues to them that I would have said in training for that attempt because the things I'm saying, they're probably not even listening to. I'm almost like white noise. All I'm doing is just creating the performance environment that they're used to. So that's how I think of queuing now when they go on the platform is I give them some encouragement, help them feel in control, then put them out there and just make noises that are encouraging and familiar and let them just do whatever they're doing autonomously because like fuck knows I don't know a single thing that you're saying to me when I compete and you handle me like I couldn't have heard you for anything at the Ford so sorry if you said something important probably about my bench it wouldn't be handy to know (laughs) oh Oh, sorry mate I just ran over Alex's foot with a um a wheelie chair um yeah fuck knows I can't hear you so I don't really expect my athletes to hear me much either I just I just want to be a comforting presence that's why I say it might be the least important thing that you do because it shouldn't actually change how your athlete goes about lifting. If you're changing how your athlete goes about lifting between their second and third attempts, that's a little bit dodgy to me. Yeah, I entirely agree. But I would even go further than that. If you're changing the way that your athlete lifts on the day of the competition, then what they've been doing in training, then that's a problem also. So not even just between attempts, but in general. Yeah. If you're trying to introduce your lifter to a new cue that they've never heard before, while they're about to go out and do a second attempt or a third attempt or an open or something, and you expect them to actually be better than this technique that they've practiced, you are fucking delusional. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I did want to talk about queuing through the setup, and this is something that I actually still do very um, intently, is talk my lifter through every single one of the steps of their setup. So, you know, in the bench, for instance, you know, hands on the bar, dig your shoulders in, slide down the bench, get your shoulders in the right spot. And then once they've actually got the bar, then you say less. It's like, okay, elbows out and whatever, punch it or something. Yeah. Like very simple once the actual lift is being executed. But in the setup, those are the things that we can help with and they're still actually listening to. Um, You know, like get the bar in the right spot, do this and that, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I almost wonder if they're listening. I do the same thing. I definitely walk my athletes through their setup for every lift and then once they start I'm just yelling encouragement but but again the reason I do it isn't because I even expect them to be listening it's just because it's what they're used to so it's like if they are listening I don't want them to hear me saying something like completely abnormal purple monkey dishwasher purple monkey dishwasher (laughs) lizards live in the moon and control us all like whatever it happens to be I don't want to be saying that I want to be saying the same things so you know, I walk them through their setup and then once the lift starts, I just yell encouragement. But yeah. but yeah, it's not because I expect to actually meaningfully change how they go about their setup. It's just it's just I want the environment for the athlete to be as familiar as possible so they can just let it happen the way that it should happen. Yeah, and all the work that they've done in the lead up to competition should dictate how well they do in the competition if you put the right weight on the bar. Saying a couple of things to them while they're lifting is not going to change the outcome. So that's important to remember. Um, the other thing is keeping your cues specific to the lifter and specific to the most important thing that that lifter does when they do a good lift, for, for instance. Mm. So like, let's take let's take Mags, for example. On her squat, when she does good squats, she'll sit back far and then she'll push back far. And those are the two things I say to her, sit back, push back. And if I were to all of a sudden start talking about her feet, that would be not specific to Mags. Mm. So almost the exa- like great example again on the weekend, my client Beck squatted a PB of like half a kilo or something. I gave her the smallest PB I could. I think it was half a kilo. Yeah, half a kilo. Um, <clears throat> but she did it really well. And so 
the difference between her best heavy singles and worst heavy singles in training were her upper back position. So to go back to my, like, how do you rationalize a good and bad attempt thingy, um, after her second attempt, which was okay, but she lost a bit of shape, she came off and said, basically, that was okay, but I lost a bit of shape. And I said, yeah, you know, you did it really well. Just keep fighting to get your elbows under the bar as you stand up, because that's what we spoke about in training. And she was like, great. And then when she went on the platform, I didn't cue her differently. I said all the same things as before, but then she'd had that moment to rationalize that um, before she went out. Like I could have spoken about, like you said, weight distribution, any a number of other things, but it wouldn't have been helpful then because it's introducing an element she's not used to concentrating on. And if you're not used to concentrating on it, then you don't feel that you have control over doing it well because you don't know what well feels like. And it's that ambiguity that then takes away from your ability to perform your best and try your hardest and shakes your confidence. So, yeah, if you're going to give somebody some feedback, try and couch it in terms that are familiar to the athlete. That's, that's my main thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really have heaps more to say on queuing. Um, no, neither. Th- so. Keep it simple. Yeah. Stupid. Chest up. <laughs> chest up. Yeah, when in doubt, just yell chest or Seriously, hips. it works. Yeah, it actually kind of does work, doesn't it? It's crazy. Um, <laughs> just yell a body part. Um, what about do you want to talk about the level of competition quickly or do you want to talk about reflections after the comp because I think both are worth touching on um, yeah we can talk about level of competition so the way I've been talking for, for pretty much this whole discussion has been couched in the like the things that I observe at local competitions and aimed at people who are mostly doing that I don't think a huge lot changes between that and higher level competition in terms of just like the framework of how you should structure warm-ups, roughly what your attempt spacing should be like. But at higher level competition, because there is the added competitive element, you probably have to be more willing to deviate from the plan. And you should also, if you're at higher level competition, unless you have an athlete who's just like a complete, you know, wonder kind or whatever, you should also have more faith in your athlete's ability to absorb some slight changes to those plans. Um, but um, but beyond that, I think the framework should be similar. You should have a similar warm-up structure. You should have a similar attempt structure. The way in which you go about queuing and all those discussions should be similar. Um, what might change are the things like setting expectations and the ways in which you go about deciding attempts. Um, what do you think of that, just generally? Um, I don't think the warm-ups and attempts and expectations and stuff changes a lot as far as... Um, we're going to set this lifter up to make the biggest total because, you know, it doesn't really matter what level of competition we're in. The goal is always the biggest total possible, the biggest realistic total possible. Yeah, I can agree with that. Um, And if we're in a situation where, you know, it's a close battle out of world championships and there's a medal up for grabs for all three lifts and the total, then we're going to have to have a little bit closer, um, closer eye on stuff like lot numbers, stuff like body weight, stuff like how the other lifters are doing and then pick our attempts based on that. Um, but that takes a lot of um, experience to sort of understand how all that kind of stuff works. But I guess the the big thing is just having that attention to detail. I don't think we're going to go too much more into like strategy and stuff like that because that's probably a topic for another podcast. No, but I would say that, yeah, that's a topic for another podcast. But I guess, I guess the, the big thing with that is um, just like we would at a local comp, we're going to be malleable to the plan. Like the plan is going to be in itself adjustable based mm-hmm. on how things are going. And the same applies 
at an international meet, the plan's going to be adjustable based on just more factors. And the biggest factor is how the rest of the competition is doing and where that puts our lifter and then where we then need to put our lifter for them to succeed relative to the other lifters. I think to put it more eloquently than I did before, at higher level competitions where an athlete says, I'm actually here to win first and foremost, I'm here to win first and foremost, they also, they absorb a greater level of risk um, that they may miss attempts or whatever chasing the win because the win is what they're after. Whereas I think most of my athletes who come with me to a local competition, if they win, that's almost incidental. They want to basically see their training cycles efforts summed up in the best result that they can have for themselves and then you know maybe you'll add a competitive layer above that if they're that type of person but basically they want to go nine for nine pb things and so on if you're at the world level obviously you want to go nine for nine pb things get the best total that you can but you're also willing to take a slightly higher level of risk for the athlete if it's warranted to try and get them a placing or a medal for an individual lift or whatever it happens to be and then the athlete's expectations have to be put around that of basically, you know, sometimes to chase first, you might risk ending in fourth and not PBing a lift. But a PB is ultimately meaningless when you put it next to the opportunity to yeah hit a medal at Worlds. That's what I mean. And the same can be said in the opposite direction too. If you're, um, if you're in front, let's say, um, let's say you're in front in the deadlift and you're the last deadlifter, and three guys go before you to be on body weight. Mm. And all you need to do is add two and a half kilos to your total in order to win the competition. Mm. If you're at a local comp, you wouldn't do that. You'd take the you'd take the PB or you take, you know, whatever number the coach thinks it has on the day on the day. But if you're out of worlds, you'll only add two and a half and you'll just take the win. Yeah. So I mean you, you, you may at a local competition choose to do that because you want to have that that feeling of competitive experience and winning. And like that actually sounds like a well contested competition where winning would be valuable. So perhaps that's a, maybe that's a slightly less good example, but I do follow your point is basically like your own achievement is more important than your competitive placing at a local competition. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Or if like, let's, let's take the individual medal thing as an example. Let's say our lifter wants to squat 250. So, because you, because we've used that example already Yeah. and they're the last lifter in the group. So they will have the advantage of being able to see what everyone else has um, put in for their third attempts already. So let's say they do 240 on the second and three lifters have chose 245. Mm. We probably wouldn't in that instance take 250 if it's a 50-50. We'd probably take a little bit less to ensure that we win that individual medal. This is at the world level. This is at a world level where there's yeah. an individual lift medal. We probably would take a little bit less to ensure that we lock that medal in versus maybe missing and ending up with no medal. Yes, that's true. Absolutely. So yeah, that's conceptually important, but beyond that, meh. Yeah, what about we won't talk too much more about the um, strategy at higher level meets we can maybe do an episode on that um, later yeah you can get JP back on to talk about it last time he sort of started touching on it he was like super tired because he'd set up the whole of nationals you remember yeah and he yeah anyway it was rambling but interesting <laughs> insights into the mind of a madman who was about to sabotage his own client he never fucking stops I know he's like just on all the time so recently, obviously, I coach JP and JP coaches Alex. Um, recently, he was saying... It's the to Holy me, Trinity. is the Holy Trinity um, or the unholy Trinity, depending on how you look at it. Um, recently, JP was saying to me, he always comes at me with some fucking far-fetched exercise thing that he's going to start doing as a hobby. So for a while, he was doing yoga. 
and then he was hiking and stuff. It was and I'm always like, about yoga. Well, just fucking stop it and keep lifting, please. Um, <laughs> but actually, fucking help him. Do yeah, I was so going to say yoga could actually be of some help to JP. Um, but then recently he decided to start riding a bike, not because he had to ride a bike, just because he thought it would be nice to have like some outdoor exercise, some cardio, just some like mind clearing time. He and probably could do with a bit of body composition improvement. Yeah, we're getting on that kind of. You just every Friday's carbonara and beers. That's the trouble. Um, so anyway, he's he's decided to start riding a bike um, here and there for all these wholesome reasons, which I was encouraging of, and also thought wouldn't really be of any detriment to his training because he was only going to ride like half an hour to to and from work, and you know he'll be at work for six hours between riding in and training half the time. Oh, and he also fucked his leg. Yeah, that was what what I was getting up to. Yeah, so he's he's just said, I'm going to ride my bike. And I was like, okay, you know, more power to you. That's cool. And then literally first day of riding the bike, he falls off and smashes his leg so badly he can't wear his knee sleeves, the idiot. Like, just pull your shit together. You never stop. Just get a fucking Uber, mate. Like, you know, have some Uber Eats. Don't fucking stay up all night cooking dinner. Quit playing chess. Stop your dumb yoga. Quit your job. Just be a lifter. Fuck professional athlete yeah if you're a professional athlete you'd be so much easier to coach um <laughs> so what are, oh reflections before i got on my anti-jp rant the soapbox the soapbox um i think reflections are important and it's something i actually neglected doing formally with my lifters um until last year and actually in this instance i do have to i think credit jp because he had a he had a reflections document and he said it was a good idea um, reflections are really valuable partly because they help lifters reconcile what they have achieved and I think so in that sense you get like a positive motivational aspect from it if you ask people what did you do well you know what are you happy with what you did what lessons have you learned all of that that's really good but also when you do them in sort of the cold light of day after a meet it also helps lifters self-identify areas that they could work on better and I think you get a lot of clarity from competition so it's a really good opportunity to get lifters to reinvest in their own training and find some new focuses that are going to help them develop. And I think just in general, fostering that sort of slightly introspective um, approach to training is a really good thing. So I think lifters after meets should do reflections. Do you always do that? Uh, Sometimes, but not very often. You don't like reading the email, do you, when somebody sends you an essay about how they feel? No, I I actually do like when they do it, but I don't send them out formally. Do you want to but have more reflections questions? No, I've got JP's one because that's pretty much the he same. coaches me. Oh, yeah. yeah well, why don't yeah. you just plagiarize that? Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> um, I, think it's, I think it's important to reflect. Can I just interrupt? You just said important like you were... Is that Cockney English? You know that? <laughs> I think it's important, sir, for you to reflect like Russell Brand I'm really bad at accents so everybody probably just heard an Aussie just speaking that badly <laughs> shut up shut up for a second oh right reflections they're important <laughs> go on alright keep going off you go then <laughs> everyone who is listening which is like five of you have yeah, just switched the podcast off <laughs> yeah. anyway um, I think it's really important to reflect upon your competition two or three days after the competition's finished because yep. if, you, if you do it immediately all you have is emotion and you're, you're not using logic and objectivity and you know that what is actually going on could be clouded by your emotion um, I won't use 
I won't use his name, but one of the boys who I coached on the weekend was a little bit upset with his performance. Uh, we mentioned him earlier. Um, and I told him, wait a couple of days and then we can have a chat over, you know, what maybe we can improve next time, what went wrong, this and that, whatever. But I told him that it was really important that he didn't sit down and reflect tonight because he'll just be negative and his attitude will be affected by it. Well, his reflection will be affected by it, his emotion. Yeah, I think exactly like you said, space helps you be truthful and analytical. Um, for a quick rundown, the questions that I ask in my reflections are what exact results did you get? So like what were your attempts? What did you get? Um, and if they're a PB, pretty sure I asked that. Then I say lift by lift and then in the total, um, like how do you think, I think it's something like how do you think you went, um, what went well, what went badly, how would you appraise your performance? Um, you know, what like, yeah, what did you feel about your attempts? Are you satisfied? And then after that I ask um, what lessons did you learn about about how to compete better next time? What lessons did you learn about your preparation? What do you think you did well? What do you think you did poorly in your preparation? What can I do better for you as a coach? And and those questions, yeah, are more designed to actually get somebody to think than they are necessarily to take heaps of information. Like I very rarely read a reflection piece from an athlete and see their training recommendations and go, oh, fuck yeah, I'm going to do that. I hadn't thought of what I want you to do. But it does get the athlete to start to think of what tools do I have at my disposal to make myself better? And um, this is probably the most important thing I think I'll say this whole episode. I was just leaving suspenseful silence. So, everybody, all two of you can... Everyone's gone, dude. You fucking... Yeah. After my Russell Brand impersonation, everybody fucked off. Well, those of you who've stayed, you're about to get a gem. Coaches don't do much. We facilitate athletes getting better. And most of coaching is just giving athletes the tools and the environment to do things themselves and learn how to be a better lifter, to put in the hard work, giving them basically the structure that allows them to go about like a self-development process. And I think when you do a reflections piece after competition, that that process of athletes self-identifying what they're going to take control of that they've realized was lacking in their last prep or if not lacking was an area that they can harness to further their own improvement is really powerful and more powerful than if you tell them yourself that because they're suddenly taking ownership of their own performance and saying this is how I'm going to invest my time and this is why it's important to me and how it was reflected in my prior practice. So I think in terms of facilitating your athletes' development, getting them to reflect on competition performances is really, really important. Um, yeah, and so that's why I'm grateful to JP for telling me to actually get a formal reflections document instead of just having a DNM with all my athletes. So I'm really awkward in DNMs. You like DMs too? Yeah, I love DMs. Fang heaps to me, please. Um, no, I'm shit in DNMs. Eh? Like I just sit there and somebody just opens up big time to me, and then I just sort of go like, uh. Awkward. And you're like, oh, cool. How bad and is then that? You start, start talking about yourself. Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah, that's true. Do you remember when you were like between twelve and fifteen, and somebody said something awkward, and then the response was people would actually just say awkward, and then it just made it so much more awkward and never progressed the situation at all. And I think that was part of the joke, but it was the worst. I do remember that. Yeah. Well, I still do that. I haven't gotten past that stage. I don't really have much more to say. I'm gonna um, finish with one story from the weekend go so nick walters guy who i coach also a coach 
Um, he was coaching one of his boys on the weekend. Went nine for nine. Did really well. Timmy Hawes. Shout out, Timmy. Shout out, Tim. Great um, kid. Great kid. I shouldn't say kid. Great man. Dude. I've known him since high school because he was in my brother's year. So in my head, he's still Tim the kid. But great dude. Anyway, Tim. Um, Walters called me over to watch his second bench press because it's an indicator. Mm-hmm. See what I did there? Yeah, good. Self-referential. Nice. That's good. Um, he called me over to watch his second attempt to tell him you know, what I thought he could do on his third. I think his second was 123. 23 comes up, pretty decent. I was like, oh yeah, plus five. Go to 128. Goes to 128, smashes it. It was easier than the second one. And then Walters looks at me, he's like, bro, like fuck, he could have done like five kilos more than that. And I was like, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. That's that's exactly what I said to him. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Yes, that's true. And the thing about a bird in hand is you can lead it to water, but it'll still flock together. <laughs> Don't mix metaphors. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Um. So basically, what that means is like a safe. <laughs> Alex explaining an idiom. A safe, Go on. No, a safe, a safe made attempt is better than a missed ambitious one, obviously. And that's like kind of just brings back what we've been talking about for I don't know how long. Along yeah, well, if you do your job in between meets um, and you don't have athletes who are actually just really good or have been injured or something, then you should, like particularly for lower level athletes, be able to take thirds that aren't a crazy reach and still get people a PB. Even if it's just a little PB. All people want to do is lift a little bit more than they did before. Like if they lift two kilos more and felt like they could have lifted five more, but it's still two kilos more than they did last time, great, job done. Yeah, exactly right. Um, yeah, so that's good. Cool, cool. Yeah, that's the end of weekly weights, I reckon, for this week. What do you reckon? Yep, we're almost up to 50. We are, and who's coming on in episode who's, 50? Who's um, going to be raising the bat? Are you going to raise the bat to the 50? Well, we got Lyle McDonald coming on. That was a massive spoiler. We'll tell him to raise the bat. We'll make him say He that. won't even know what raising the bat yeah, is. We'll explain it to him. He'll probably hang do up. Do you raise the bat at your 50? Yeah, of course. Oh, you just quickly acknowledge yeah, the crowd. You raise right? the For bat. your hundred, you actually walk you, around. No, waiting. your hundred, you take your helmet off and you kiss it and you hug your batting partner. Well, I'm not fucking kissing and hugging you at hundred. Let me tell you, that's going out publicly. I'm. If anything, I'm going to record weekly ways remotely from you. On Mate, the if you bench a hundred, you fucking deserve a kiss and yeah, hug. Yeah, if I bench a hundred, I'll fucking take my helmet off and wave it to the crowd. Pussy. <laughs> All right, I'm done. I'm Will Berkman. And with me is Alex Hayes. You can find Alex Hayes on Instagram at Alex Hayes underscore lift. Where can you find me? I don't know. (laughs) In the dumpster with my bench. (laughs) All right. Chat to you guys next week.